0: Welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. We are a Catholic young adult ministry located in Kansas City with a mission to be the community that inspires and forms our generation to be saints. Father Mattingly, director and chaplain of City on a Hill, is also an associate pastor at a local parish. Listen in to a recent Sunday homily of his and let it build you up in your pursuit of sainthood. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of City on a Hill.
1: be with all of you this morning on our patronal feast day of the parish, Divine Mercy Sunday. Uh, In a way, you could say that, although Easter Sunday, of course, is the the feast par excellence in in the church, in in a certain way, you could say that today is uh, the most important day of the year for our parish, being the shrine of Divine Mercy. And many of you uh, who have been at the parish for a while are familiar with the background of how this devotion developed and, of course, how it arrived at the parish here through through Monsignor Blasted many years ago. Uh, But for those of you who perhaps are not as familiar with the devotion to the Divine Mercy, just sort of a brief history for you. In the year 2000, Pope St. John Paul II canonized St. Faustina, who was sort of an obscure, Polish nun who lived from 1905 to 1938 and received all of these messages from our Lord telling her to spread this devotion to His Divine Mercy in a variety of ways, by means of having an an image painted which we have above our altar, by means of spreading the practice of a chaplet of Divine Mercy, of encouraging people to really pay close attention to the hour of mercy, the three o'clock hour each day, but especially on Fridays, um, by observing the Feast of Divine Mercy, and many other things. Many of you have read her diary. Uh, So he canonized her in the year 2000, and in that same moment he also proclaimed that the Universal Church, from that point forward, would celebrate the second Sunday after Easter as Divine Mercy Sunday. We may ask the question, like, and this is this is important, whenever the Lord throughout church history asks a particular saint or somebody to begin spreading a new devotion, it's always because there's a particular need for that message in that period of time in church history. So an important question for us to ask ourselves is why did our Lord come in the early 20th century and demand that a new devotion be spread? to what he called his greatest attribute, which is mercy. Right? Why the, at this particular point in history did he ask that this devotion be spread? As we sort of examine the 20th century moving into the 21st, uh, the answer becomes fairly obvious fairly quickly of why this message of mercy is more needed now, you might say, than ever. it's more needed now than ever but first it's important to go back and just to see how mercy is it's a central message if not the central message of of the gospel this is one way that you can sort of encapsulate the basic gospel message is that god has come to show us mercy we can see this throughout our lord's life obviously in his public ministry he went around showing mercy to people's sufferings of all kinds but he seemed particularly concerned and you might even say zealous and excited to show mercy to people's sins right we see that throughout his public ministry not only would he would he physically heal people but then he would often follow that up by saying your sins are forgiven right sort of a, a deeper kind of mercy than just mercy on somebody's physical sufferings. And then on the cross, of course, the sort of supreme moment of his life, he was very concerned, even there, to show mercy to those who were crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He called down the mercy of his Father upon his murderers. He also showed mercy to the repentant thief on the cross. Even though... Some of you who maybe have studied crucifixion from a biological perspective, you'll know that those who are crucified die by asphyxiation. Their lungs fill with blood and they're no longer able to breathe. And yet Jesus on the cross spends some of his precious breath to call down mercy upon the repentant thief who is there. Say, amen, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Right there on the cross, he spends some precious words accomplishing an, an act of mercy. And then when he rises from the dead and we look at his first appearance to all the apostles gathered together on Easter Sunday night, the first thing he says when he shows up in the upper room is he says, "Peace be with you." And in a sense, we can understand that gesture as an act of mercy. The apostles would have been both and we read that they were they were joyful upon seeing the Lord. But you can also understand how they might have been filled with a lot of shame, right? The Lord appears to them in the upper room and they think to themselves, we all just, except for John over here, <laughs> we all just uh, we all just abandoned him a couple nights ago in his hour of greatest need. And so then for him to show up, they probably would have been filled with deep, deep shame and regret. And so he reassures them and he says, you know, he says twice peace be with you. In other words, don't, don't worry, rest assured, let my mercy come upon you. And then the first thing he does, this is so critical, the first thing he does, and appearing to all of his chosen 12 together, or 11 at that point, the first thing he does after rising from the dead is he passes on to them the mission of mercy. Right, he breathes on them, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, Whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Whose sins you retain are retained. The first thing he does, derising from the dead, is establish the sacrament of confession. Is establish the means by which those who are to come after the apostles can have recourse to his mercy. Right? Very, very important. He passes on the mission of mercy to his apostles after rising from the dead. So mercy is at the heart of the gospel. It is, in a sense, the gospel message. But why? Why did we need this message anew at this particular time in history? Well, look at the 20th century into the 21st. It's the bloodiest century that's ever exist- that, that's ever passed in human history like no other century even holds a candle to the bloodshed of the 20th century. It started out with World War I, which would have occurred when St. Faustino was just a young girl. And in World War I, those of you who know your history, there were 10 million who perished, which was far surpassed by a long shot any war that had ever happened in the history of the world up to that point. And after it was over, people called it the Great War, and they said that it would never happen again. People were so horrified by the deaths of, of so many soldiers they said, never, never ever again was something like will we allow something like this to happen? Of course, 30 years later, World War II happened, where you not only had the casualties of war, which amounted close to 40 to 50 million souls, but you also had the intentional extermination of whole swaths of, of people. Jews and, and others alike, right? This sort of demonic intentional extermination of whole groups of people. So the bloodshed was mounting. And then and then you look after that, the establishment of all these totalitarian regimes around the world, instilling a, a spirit of atheism in their people suppressing them, taking away freedoms, and and tens and tens of more millions of people starving to death under Soviet Russia and, and all these other parts of the world, genocides, right? The bloodshed continues, and then the worst of all, you arrive in the 1960s and 70s with the sexual revolution, which produces the legalization of abortion in countries all throughout the world, and the death toll from that Is in the hundreds and hundreds of millions, far surpassing all the bloodshed, even of the totalitarian regimes and both world wars put together. So we we look at at the atrocities that are still continuing, we look at all of this bloodshed, and and that alone is enough to give us an indication of why Jesus came to St. Faustine and said, Look, the world. Needs to know the message of my mercy there's so much sin so much bloodshed so much loss of faith in the world today the message of mercy has to be proclaimed anew it must be proclaimed anew. why because when we're faced with all of this evil all of this evil in the world there are typically two things that can happen two two bad things that can happen in people's hearts right trust in god's mercy is what you might describe as sort of the narrow middle way and if we don't stick to that we'll often respond to the evil in the world in in one of two extremes the first extreme is despair we look at we look at all this evil and bloodshed in the world we also look at the evil in our own hearts our own sins and we can be tempted to despair, to despair of God's mercy, to despair of anything good ever coming from all of this evil. On the other extreme, it can be very easy to also fall into presumption, presumption on God's mercy, or even for those who, who don't believe in God, those with no faith. The, the the version of presumption for them is what you might call like a like a hard-heartedness or a numbness to evil and sin. Right, these are the two extremes.
0: Trust trust in God's mercy is this narrow middle way,
1: but it's very easy for any of us to fall into one of these one of these two extremes. The first first being despair. Many people in the confessional, outside of the confessional who who are tempted very consistently to despair. They despair about the, the evil going on in the world. They despair that God could ever bring anything good from it. Right? So they, they sort of doubt the power and breadth of God's goodness to bring good from evil. But even more importantly, there's very much a temptation to despair when they look at the sins of their own life, to despair that they could be forgiven To despair that God is powerful enough to to wash them clean, to make them new, to bring something good from their own life, right? I think it is important to point out that in a temptation to despair, there is some silver lining and some truth in the thought process there. That somebody tempted to despair, they do do have one thing right. (laughs) The one thing they have right is an understanding of the gravity of sin. The person who is tempted to fall into despair, they they do at least understand that sin has dramatic consequences for themselves, for other people, for the wider body of Christ, for the world at large. They understand the effects that their sins have on the sacred heart of Jesus. Somebody tempted to despair, they they get that part right. The part they get wrong (laughs) is not realizing that even though sin has a gravity to it, it is so far away from the breadth and scope of power of God's mercy that that there's really no comparison. There's 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 just sort of no it's, it, there's nothing there to compare. The power of God's mercy is so overwhelming and and, and large and, and magnanimous and wonderful, and every adjective you can think of, that even the worst sins in the world just don't, they just don't hold, uh, they don't stand a chance against the Lord's mercy for somebody who who trusts, who trusts in that. The Lord had for St. Faustina lots and lots of words for souls tempted to despair. Um, he, He told her on one occasion, said, My daughter, write that the greater the misery of a soul... The greater its right to my mercy. This language—I remember the first few times I read this, it didn't really um, stick out to me. And then the more I thought about it, the more kind of crazy and and wonderful it it, it sort of uh, came to be for me that we would have a right to God's mercy. It's it's a very strange way for the Lord to describe it because. Technically speaking, of course, mercy is a pure gift. It's a total gift. We can do nothing to earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet, the Lord here is telling St. Faustina that the greater our sins, the greater a, a right we have to his mercy. It sort of should show us to some extent how intense God's desire is to forgive us. The fact that he would willingly say you have a right to my mercy it's it's crazy (laughs) it's it's absolutely crazy he tells her urge all souls to trust in the unfathomable abyss of my mercy because i want to save them all i want to save them all i cannot punish even the greatest sinner if he makes an appeal to my mercy right let the weak, sinful soul have no fear to approach me. For even if it had more sins than there are grains of sand in the world, all would be drowned in the unmeasurable depths of my mercy. And if you have more sins than all the grains... You know how many grains of sand there are in the world? <laughs> I don't I don't. but <laughs> it's a lot, right? Even if you had more, more sins than the grains of sand in the world, not a big deal for God's mercy if we, if we trust God. These are are the Lord's words for for despairing souls and for us, for those people in our life, for us to be missionaries of mercy, if we find somebody who's stuck in discouragement or despair about their sins, you and I have to proclaim forcefully, this is the straight up gospel message, you and I have to proclaim forcefully the power and the scope and the breadth of God's mercy. Right, to, to, to cast a light into their heart so that they have the courage, if they're Catholic, to run to the Lord in confession. If they're not, to approach him for the first time in faith um, and to ask his forgiveness. But there's also the other extreme, I said, of falling into presumption, where we can take God's mercy for granted um, and we treat him in a very sort of cold and mechanical way. So for a Catholic, what this would look like is somebody who thinks that they can sort of take or leave the sacrament of confession. And I was talking to somebody a few years ago, a family member who, in the course of the conversation, I discovered they hadn't been to confession in 30 or 40 years, and they were just continuing to receive communion every Sunday as if it was no big deal. Um, and I asked them about this, and they're like, well, like God's merciful, he'll forgive me, you know? God's merciful, he'll forgive me. Um, Again, there's a silver lining here in the presumptuous soul. The silver lining is, of course, that God is patient and He's gentle and He's merciful. But to treat the Lord in that way is a sign that somebody has almost no love for God. Imagine
0: a a husband who
1: just day after day for 40 years mistreats his wife in all kinds of ways, big and small. And yet, in the back of his mind, he just says, well, my wife's a good person. I just expect that like, when I get sick, she's gonna, she's gonna care for me. And, and if at some point I do actually choose to ask for her forgiveness, then she'll just give it to me right away, right? And we would look at a, a person in that situation and say, "Like, how, how cold and heartless. <laughs> there's, no, there's no love there. there. There's no love there. That's, that's how we treat God. When we, we fall into this trap of presumption, just saying I'm just I'm just going to treat your mercy, Lord, like a like a gumball machine. Like whenever I want it, I'm just going to you know put it. I'm not going to really make any efforts to, to, to stop hurting you by my sins. I'm just going to presume that when the time comes that you'll you'll show me mercy. It's a dangerous game to play, of course, if we if we avoid confession uh, in that manner because we have no idea when the Lord will, will take us. From this life. A presumption also happens for those who are, who are non-believers and in this case, it sort of takes the form of kind of a hard-heartedness or, um, yeah, sort of a, a hard-heartedness and, uh, and a pride. Um, but even for a non-believer, they're kind of lying to themselves because we all have a conscience, so we all sense to a degree or, or another when we've we've sinned. And so by pretending that there's not sin in the world or that I can define what that is for myself, a non-believer in this case is is sort of lying to himself. Um, And so in this particular instance, how do we we proclaim the message of divine mercy to somebody on the presumption side of the spectrum? On the despair side, it's it's fairly easy. We We just say, you just need to trust in God's mercy It's way bigger than your sins. (laughs) way of making your sins. For somebody on the presumptuous side, it's it's a bit more difficult. It's a bit more difficult. And in a strange, this is going to sound strange, for somebody on the presumptuous side, we actually first have to proclaim the reality of sin, right? Because if somebody isn't aware of what sin does to themselves, to others, to God, Um, then mercy is going to seem like something we can take or leave. It's also not going to be very impressive. But if I don't take sin seriously, mercy doesn't seem like a particularly impressive gift. But if I really understand what sin is and what it does, the gift of mercy suddenly becomes the the, the greatest thing I could possibly receive in this life. So for somebody in this situation, we have to sort of get creative and and try to figure out how can I... (laughs) How can I proclaim to this person the reality of, of sin? And and and, it, and it's not an easy not an easy task. It can take many different forms, but but I would say primarily in this case, we're going to sort of do best with leading by example by by the way we live, living a merciful stance towards other people, bearing with wrongs, when somebody sort of insults us or, or treats us poorly to respond with perfect charity and kindness. And this person on the outside to see that and hopefully begin to comprehend by looking at us and the way we live to sort of understand what mercy means and what it, what it looks like. But above all, and I'll leave you with this, in our task of being missionaries of mercy to the world, above all, we need to live a life of, of hidden prayer and sacrifice. Because only by doing that will the channels of God's mercy really begin to open up in the people who are a part of our life. I think it's so, so easy for us to just fall prey to the the active mentality of like, I have to do this technique or say the perfect words for, for this person or that person to really come to know the Lord's mercy. No, 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 that's like secondary, like way down the road. You and I have to live a life of real hidden prayer and sacrifice for specific people and say lord soften this person's heart who's full of presumption and pride i'm going to offer you these sacrifices i'm going to beg you for this every day for years if that's what it takes lord grant this person an awareness of how big your mercy is help them to rise up from the pit of their despair i'm going to offer you these prayers and sacrifices for years if that's what it takes for you to to show mercy to this person in their life so my prayer today for all of us in the shrine of divine mercy this greatest greatest day of the year for our parish is that you and i will, will take this role of of being missionaries and channels of god's mercy more seriously in this next year than we ever have before in our life and that this this parish really will become a beacon of mercy to this whole city and, and even beyond that
0: um, to to the whole world. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the City on a Hill podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and leave a review so others will come across our content. If City on a Hill has been a gift to you, consider joining our mission by making a monthly gift. Learn more at kansascityonahill.org slash donate. Be your best and strive to be a saint.